Good afternoon. Today is Wednesday, May 31st, 2023, and you're listening to KUAF 91.3 FM in Fayetteville, a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas. And this is a special episode of Ozarks at Large. I'm Daniel Carruth, and all this week the OAL team is taking a bit of a break and bringing you some archive and special stories. Today, we have a collection of excerpts from a few KUAF-produced podcasts. Later in the episode, we'll hear from two standout podcast hosts, Irvin Camacho of the District 3 podcast and Randy Wilburn of the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast. And then we'll take an unusual tour of Rome with a group of students from the University of Arkansas on points of departure. First, though, we turn to the most recent episode of The R Word, a series about reparations' role in racial, social, and economic justice and the Christian church, both historically and today. In this episode, host Lowell Taylor speaks with author Christina Edmondson. Her book, Faithful Anti-Racism, Moving Past Talk to Systemic Change, explores practical ways to combat racism within the Christian church. Here's an excerpt from that conversation. I'll give you a, a little bit of backstory because I think it'll help you to make sense out of the book and why why we decided to to uh, to present this offering, so to speak. Um, some years back, this is like pre-COVID days, <laughs> so it feels like it feels like a decade ago, but it was not a decade, but it was pre-COVID. Uh, Chad and I, we did not know each other, but we were a part of a group of people that were invited to an event. Um, uh, that was uh, in Seattle, I believe, remembering correctly. And uh, Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil was uh, the the person who you know convened this time together. And it wasn't a huge a huge crowd of people, but um, I remember um, there being maybe roughly twenty ish, I think, of us. And people knew each other's work or knew each other's names in some way, shape, or form. Um, uh, but some people knew each other really well, and, and some people were just starting to get to know each other. And it was an opportunity really for like a kind of a spiritual respite for people who are Christians who um, do the work or hope to do the work of racial justice. And it was at that place that I got to hang out with some, some researchers like Chad Brennan and Michael Emerson <laughs> and others. And we began to brainstorm and just, just talk about what it means to be in higher ed or to um, approach this particular topic, not first and foremost as a preacher, um, although we are preachy, I'm sure, <laughs> but to approach it, bringing to bear kind of um, our, our social science background and interests, right? And mine, um, largely as a psychologist, but has a sociology um, background as well. And uh, and so, and from there, conversations kind of flowed. And I had some 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 buddies that were there, actually two, two pastors in Chicago, and you're probably familiar with their work. One was Daniel Hill, um, and the other was Pastor David Swanson. And I remember both of them saying like, Christina, where's your book? Like, you should write a book. <laughs> I was like, yeah, y'all should give me a sabbatical. <laughs> Um, but it was a very, very kind. I think they were saying like we want to, we would, we would read what you what you share. And and then uh, a matter of months later, um, that team reached out to me, Chad specifically, and and uh, initially would ask me uh, questions about the research project that they had underway and 
my thoughts about the target audience, the framing of questions, so kind of methodological kind of stuff. Um, and eventually, uh, we knew that from this large research project uh, of both quantitative and qualitative research, there was going to be this huge uh, body of material produced. And what were we going to do with it? And um, we knew that uh, Glenn Bracey has a book that he he's working on. Michael Emerson has a book that he's working on. A lot of those are very strong kind of academic audience books, um, really important for the church. But I would say that the first audience is, is uh, academicians. And Chad reached out to me about writing a book where we knew the audience would be uh, Christians, you know, church going Christian types who say they believe the Bible, <laughs> like that, that kind of group of people. And, um, and that, was, that was interesting to me. And, um, and particularly my psychologist had on, uh, to think about how to talk to that population, um, but to bring to bear in relevant and faithful ways what we see uh, in, in, in the social science work, right, around, around religion and racism. And so we got to working on it. And um, we didn't know COVID was going to happen, but we kept working. And, uh, and then we, and we produced uh, this book, which I hope has been helpful to people that have been able to read it. Well, I'm so happy that you did write the book. Uh, I so enjoyed it and especially have, have appreciated really everything I've read by some of the folks that you mentioned, uh, Michael Emerson, Corey Little Edwards, who I think both wrote uh, forwards to your book. Um, Absolutely. Man, yeah. That's, yeah, that's incredible. It's like if you can get those two folks to forward for your book, it's like, man, you know, you know, some good folks. <laughs> Uh, well, well, I, well, I, well. This is what I realized. Even if people didn't like the part that Chad and I created, they would at least, you know, give honor where honor is due to uh, Dr. Corey Edwards Little and to uh, Michael Emerson. And so, and they had been people who I would think, from an academic standpoint, were you know sociologist heroes of mine. And so, uh, it's really cool to um, to think about their their contribution and, and just a reminder that. Um, that people are are serving the, are doing the work of the kingdom from all kinds of locations, and so some of us are in higher education or business or wherever we might be. Um, we don't necessarily all kind of live at the pulpit uh, to do that work. Yeah, well, I will say I did purchase the book before I know I knew who wrote the forward, but afterwards, afterwards, <laughs> I was I was happy to see that. There you so, go. <laughs> uh, but Dr. Emerson, speaking of the research. To me, one of the most important findings from the research that you base the book on is that many people, especially white Christians, have misunderstood the problem of racism. Therefore, we've made it worse, not better. And in chapter one, you wrote, uh, quote, there was a large percentage of Christians in all racial groups who provided non-structural explanations or denied the existence of racial disparities. That is a major barrier to Christians helping to address racial injustice. If we do not understand the problem, it is much more likely that we will contribute to perpetuate it rather than helping to address it. Um, to me, that may have been the most important paragraph of the book. So can you comment on that? Oh, sure, sure. And, you know, this appeals to the work, certainly, of Michael Emerson and others, right, who um, so when we are when we're trying to make sense out of the world around us, we employ different tools to make that happen. Right. And so uh, most people would acknowledge to some extent that there there have been different experiences and there are um, 
different lived realities for people across racial lines. Now, now there are some people who would say like, no, there isn't. <laughs> we, we, we see some of that in the data too. But I would say that many people might say, okay, well, you know, that seems to be a black neighborhood over there in comparison to what they might think of as a white neighborhood over here, right? And so there's a sense in which we're trying to make sense out of, you know, why the schools or why the policing dynamic or why, um, the, the amenities or uh, what what is afforded to that community right like where do we see where do we see water crises happening right Flint Michigan and in Jackson Mississippi there's there's some commonalities between those cities for example right the high population of African American people that are there um, and so different people people try to make sense out of that right and so some people and we associate this with from the research from what we've seen um, white people who identify as Christian are more likely to make sense out of those disparities um, by, by providing an explanation that is much more characterologically based than structurally based. And so, you know, why is there economic disparity uh, between such, such disparity between whites and blacks, for example, or whites and indigenous people in the United States, for example? What, 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 how do we make sense out of that? It is more likely for white Christians to cite the personal or, or false notions of personal work ethic, um, family structure, value systems, before actually talking about things like, I don't know, the GI Bill <laughs> or, uh, or redlining in neighborhoods that impact property wealth, or, you know, uh, it, yeah, wealth on property. And, um, and, and so many hundreds of years of of reasoning, structural reasoning, uh, for why there is the economic disparity that we see today. So let me give you this short story, and I'll stop talking. Um, a, a couple of years back, I was um, I was asked to speak uh, at a uh, a Christian private Christian uh, university in Iowa. It was my first trip to Iowa, and. Uh, <laughs> Although I know there are black people in Iowa, this this black person had had not been to Iowa, <laughs> and um, and so I was invited to uh, to Iowa to speak at this university. And while I was there, I just love to learn about like you know locations and cities where I find myself. And really, it's racial story, uh, it's important to me while I'm there. And one of the things I started to look at was some um, some kind of old uh, newspaper clippings that were um, kind of in, kind of an electronic form. And it talked about the ways in which um, in this part of Iowa, which, which had all of this, you know, acres and acres of farmland, the way in which in the late 1800s, particular immigrant groups, European immigrant groups were uh, petitioned, they were, they were, notices were sent uh, saying, this is, you know, wonderful farmland here, come. <laughs> and particularly one group example for, were people who, uh, who were Swedes. Come, come to Iowa, come to Iowa. Now, this is in the late 1800s. Now, um, the, the the case that they were making was you can come here, you can build up this community, you can get this farmland and, and pretty much kind of giving this land away. Now, what else is happening in the late 1800s? Well, there are a, a humongous group, millions of, of formerly enslaved African-Americans who know a thing or two about agriculture and farmland, by the way. <laughs> um, they are not being told, come here. And, and have access to this land that you will simply just have. And that's just one little snapshot. There are multiple narratives of the American story in which land is literally given away 
to different groups of people, which, which we know is going to have a significant impact on their ability to grow wealth and to distribute that wealth from gener one generation to the next. Thank you for that answer, Dr. Edmondson. I, I know it's beyond the scope of today's conversation to explain why structural explanations are more correct than non-structural explanations for racial disparities. However, I, I do want to say I was impressed by the persistence of that misunderstanding from, for example, you know, Divided by Faith uh, in 2000 to your book, which was written in 2021, 2022, that the, that same misunderstanding persists among white Christians. And, you know, even in the work of, of Robert Jones that I read that I think was written in, you know, 2014, 2016, that's a consistent theme uh, among folks who, who are like me, white Christian people who identify that way. Um, but I think it's important for, for us to, to acknowledge that misunderstanding if, we, we have any hope of contributing positively to racial justice, to racial equity. So I really appreciate you all shining a light on that. Well, and, and so it, it's not that, so white Christians have been given that narrative. They've been given that narrative so early in their development and it's so, uh, it, it, it's so much in kind of the ethos and in the, in the fog of their socialization that they may not even be able to individually pinpoint like, where did I first get that from? That's my original idea. It's not like, it's a, it's a well-propagandized idea. And so to actually see, to actually um, not land in that place, someone would have to be actively resisting kind of the, what's, what's in the water. Um, within kind of dominant white evangelicalism to have a different perspective. So um, I just at least I at least wanted to throw that that out there to say that it it they people have this perspective because they're socialized into this perspective, whether they know it or not. And this is why education, implicit like you know, and explicit education, formal and informal education, is so critically important, uh, random example, you think about a group like the Daughters of the Confederacy, right? So this group of women who are uh, charged to uphold the memory of, of Confederate soldiers who have given their life during the Civil War, right? So they're, these, are, these are fathers and grandfathers and husbands and et cetera, right? And so this appears from the Confederate lens as a noble endeavor. And, the, and they take that charge all the way into today. Like there are chapters today. <laughs> and, and one of the main con educational contributions, and I'm doing air quotes, are, are that many of the statues that we see, right, in, in honor and legacy and memory of Confederate soldiers are, were fundraised and put in place by the Daughters of the Confederacy who kind of had that charge of socialization, education, I would say propaganda, right? And another thing they did that we don't talk a lot about is that they significantly informed the historical education of not just children in the South, but textbook development throughout the United States of America. And if I say these things out loud, Lowell, you'll be like, I've heard this before. Some of the talking points that they that they um, emphasized were things like, well, slavery was not that bad. Slaves were treated like family members. You wonder why there's so many people who say that. And you're like, what in the world? Like, that's wild. Well, it was one of the, the narratives, one of the talking points, one of the themes that were strategically placed within, to, within textbooks, right? 
So that was that was a big one. The other one, you'll hear this all the time. The Civil War was not about slavery. <laughs> it was not about right. And you you're hit, you're like, what in the world? Like we can read Confederate uh, generals, it, we can read like their the primary sources in their own words, and they will say this. And yet it appears that that talking point is much stronger and louder than even the words of Confederate generals themselves. And that speaks to the power of formal and informal education and the ways in which people have been socialized and propagandized throughout generations. So Dr. Emerson, let's, let's transition a little bit um, to, to folks who are willing to say that racism is a structural problem. Uh, perhaps they've been educated, they've, they've read, they understand, okay, this is a structural issue. Um, but there are some people who are willing to say that raci racism is a structural problem but are unwilling to do anything about it. So can you comment on the subtitle of the book, Moving Past Talk to Systemic Change, and share an example, perhaps from your interviews, of people who have moved past talk? Right. So, so I think that for many people who, who have, have been doing their reading, who have been who have been examining what is happening out here with a, with a different lens, there is a sense of frustration of, okay, I'm, I'm tired of talking about it. Like, what are we going to do? The, pe the people who, who do believe that uh, this is, this is a, a, a structural issue, right? Um, that, now, by the way, in saying that it's a structural issue does not mean that it's not also a moral issue. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's not an, um, kind of a one-on-one, a -on -one, kind of a personal racism prejudice issue. All of that, all that's true. Uh, but the reason why we see it operating autopilot, like just, just, you know, just cranking itself out over and over again is because it's very much structural. It's embedded in our practices, policies, laws, et cetera. Um, and that's, that's what we're getting at when we're talking about something being structural. So our hope was to move past talk, just talking about the issues, but, but thinking creatively with, uh, and it's, it's obviously the book is written from a Christian framework, but thinking about having applying God-given wisdom and humility to uh, rolling back some of these structural dynamics. So first we have to see it for what it is <laughs> and then think about what are concrete ways to respond to the injustice and the structural, uh, the structural uh, design is, is continuing to perpetuate in terms of racial injustice. So for example, when we talk to people who, um, who have spent time on a smaller scale, not necessarily a, a societal scale, but on a smaller scale, thinking about the organizations that they're a part of. So um, if, if you think about you know, uh, both Duke and, and Greg, Duquan uh, and, and Greg uh, Tom, Thomas Thompson, um, his their book on reparation. So you have an example of people who are looking through the, that topic specifically from a church standpoint and primarily through the denominational affiliations that they have close proximity to. But nevertheless, that is an attempt to do kind of a, a, a microstructural analysis of what does it mean for this denomination, this theological tradition to reckon with its policies and practices. Right. And, and to really consider how do we name those things and make clear uh, methods of addressing them, of rolling them back. So where there has been exclusion, where there has been a lack of access, where there, um, yeah, where there was uh, harm done to people 
through uh, theological uh, documents that were written by esteemed and elevated theologians from the tradition. How do you repair the harm that has been done? So, and when we have a conversation about reparation, we're also having a conversation about restorative justice. And reparation is, is not only economic, and that's really important because <laughs> slavery and, and racial injustice is a, has a lot to do with money um, and power, um, but, but it is not only e economic, There's, there are also other restorative justice expressions that happen, for example, which include acknowledging um, that an esteemed or beloved theologian was wrong <laughs> and, um, and that they use their words and, and position within the church, their spiritual influence to actually do spiritual abuse through uh, endorsing the subjugation of African-American people, for example. That is an expression of restorative justice, simply to name it and then to, to creatively consider, to use kind of holy imagination, what would it look like to repair this in the way that we move forward? I got just relaxed, in insecurities, that was Christina Edmondson speaking with host Lowell Taylor on the most recent episode of his podcast, The R Word. You can hear the full podcast episode and more from The R Word when you go online to KUAF.com or by searching The R Word wherever you listen to podcasts. This is a special episode of Ozarks at Large. A quick reminder, all of the podcasts you hear in this episode are able to listen to in their entirety right now, wherever you listen to podcasts or online at KUAF.com. Just go to the Listen tab and click Local Podcasts. The third annual Her Set, Her Sound Festival is back June 9th and 10th at West and Watson and Prairie Street Live in Fayetteville. Her Set, Her Sound takes up space to celebrate identity and empower women and non-binary DJs in our region. Guests can enjoy food trucks, vendors, and entrepreneurs, plus groovy vibes and activations to amplify her on and off the stage. Tickets and sponsorship information available at Her Set hersound.com. You're listening to Ozarks at Large. I'm Daniel Carruth. Feeding America ranks Arkansas as the second most food insecure state in the U.S. What does it look like to have a better understanding of where our food comes from and what exactly does food justice mean? Terius Bruce is a doctoral student studying these questions, and he was a guest on the last episode of the podcast Undisciplined, produced in conjunction with KUAF and Ozarks at Large and the African and African American Studies program at the University of Arkansas. The show is hosted by Karee Banton. Here's a piece of that episode released in April. I did grow up in a food secure home. Food was something that I didn't look at it as being without, uh, but at the same time, I didn't really understand what it meant to be without food. I didn't have a lot of people that I could identify to say, oh, they don't have food. So food was always something that was familiar to me. Food represented love and care and affection and family. Um, I associated food uh, with being around people that I care about, and I never saw that you know there was a lack of food. I don't think it was until maybe high school or maybe, yeah, maybe high school or college when I realized that there are people who are without food and they have no way to get food. And it's a difficulty to 
to acquire food on a daily basis, not necessarily just to have in your refrigerator, you know, every week, but just day by day, trying to understand where the next meal is coming from, not three meals a day, but just one meal a day. And that's when I realized that, you know, there are more problems on different levels and it doesn't necessarily mean a person is poor because uh, I've observed rich people who have no food. And it sometimes is that they can't acquire food. They don't understand what healthy food is. That That's kind of what led me down the path to understand all food is not good. And I, it made me understand and question more about what is food, what is nutrition. And I think that's just my brain and the way in which I learned to go down these different rabbit holes to understand, you know, what the true meaning and true value of things are, not necessarily what somebody's definition is. So how did you get into looking at the environment, sustainability, food justice, and entering into this program here at the University of Arkansas? Very good question. So I started with understanding that I wanted my family to stay together. I needed community. And in order to do that, you know, people had to have homes to live in. And that was the largest reason why I think, you know, most of my family members tend to, uh, you know, go other places. They have better job opportunities. You know, they have a house of their own. They don't have to live with other family members. And I thought it made more sense to create a space where we could all collectively live uh, in the same area. Uh, even though every family has you know, issues, the biggest thing is to have family close means that you have a support system. And I realized in this collective community I needed to build, there was more than just a house. There was more than just you know, electricity. We had to have running water. We had to be able to depend on the food that we're growing. You know, all these different variables made me understand that one of the biggest components was food. People had to have energy to keep moving and keep going. So I looked at food as that factor that needed to be uh, represented the most. That's what made me decide to go into food security and food resiliency is because it's something that is lacking across the globe. And it's something that if we don't do something about in the next few years, there are going to be a lot more hungry people than we see today. And this program at the University of Arkansas, uh, the Environmental Dynamics Programs, it combines these types of food systems, these natural systems and climate factors, uh, as well as the way that humans adapt to these factors and these different challenges. So that's what drew me here. And I found a family or a home here that allows me to look into my research and find solutions and not just talk about it. The idea of theorizing just it doesn't do it for me. I need to be able to be hands-on, be practical. I like place-based learning. So this program has given me the opportunity to do such. I'm someone who, Terrius, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in cornfields and soybean fields. And I think there's a lot of assumptions folks may have when it comes to agriculture and farming here in the United States. What has been your experience with kind of dispelling some of those ideas around uh, what it looks like to farm and to farm for food here in the U.S.? So I definitely realized that there's a difference between farming and growing food for production for a profit. I realized that just because people are farmers, it does not mean 
that they are food secure. Oh right, sure, yeah. I mean, where I grew up, where I grew up, the corn that we grew in our fields was for wasn't, export. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't meant for me to eat. It wasn't sweet corn. It was corn <laughs> right. that was going to get ground down for cows or for livestock. Right. The same for the soybeans. We weren't eating those as like edamame. <laughs> yeah. We were. We were. You know, making that into other soy products. Mm-hmm. That's right. And you, you hit it right on the head. And I think that uh, one of the biggest, I guess, misconceptions I had is that, hey, if people are growing food, they're good. You know, they have food. It wasn't until I was able to engage with you know, different families that grew on large scales but had no food to eat. Not until the harvest is sold to, do they have money to go to the grocery store and buy food. There's no exchange of crops between farmers. There's none of that. There is, hey, this is what we, we have for, uh, for sale. This is what this whole purpose is. We are selling this. We're not consuming any of this. And like you said, a lot of times the crops that they have is not for the purpose of human consumption. A lot of times it's made just for feed. You know, so we have a problem with allocation of where these crops go. A lot of times people are food insecure because everyone's growing around them, but the issue is it's allocated for another purpose other than to feed these people. So I've realized that you know, you have to look at every situation on a case-by-case basis. There is no one way, and, you know, my goal is to be able to assess these situations as they come individually, not to look at it as a broad whole. Everybody's different. Hearing you talk about that in terms of food insecurity and what our agricultural patterns tell us, right? I'm thinking, as with many things, right, this goes back to slavery and how that structured our economy, I'm thinking about as a Jamaican and as a country that largely has to import food. And this is a part of that colonial system that was, here are these islands in the Caribbean that we're going to grow sugarcane on, on a wide scale. And then we're going to ship in food because we need all of the arable land to grow sugarcane. And it was enslaved Africans because the slaveholders were unable to provide all of their food needs. They were given these little, very small parcels of land to create their provision grounds. And they started growing little food stuff for their own, you know, use in the house, right? And for bartering amongst themselves, right? And creating this alternative economy. And in some cases, it took off like with bananas before United Fruit came in and wiped that out and took it to Latin America. So I'm I'm wanting to ask Tarius, how can we connect the legacy of slavery to these current discussions, not only of food insecurity, but also environmental issues and, you know, environmentalism in African-American communities around land, food, and all of that kind of stuff? So I think that, you know, this is, you know, a challenging question. I think it's going to take several decades for us to get to the point that we need to be sustainable and we need to be balanced. But I think that in these communities, I like to call it the gun. I actually you know, took that term from KRS-One. Uh, the gun has to be put back into these communities. And it's through God, through the universe, and through nature. And it's like that alignment and that balance. Once you have that focus and that center, I think that we will be able to understand more about how these problems, they exist on many different scales. So being able to solve these issues, we have to have a different understanding, a more 
uh, well-rounded understanding because these issues, they affect, affect everyone in everything that we do. So I think the only way we can get back there is to be able to be grounded back into the nature of what things are and un- have a better understanding. And that way we can see how the systems move and we can understand how things grow, how things work together in harmony. And that's the way we bring back the balance. And I think without those principles, I think that we can't continue to live lives by rules. We have to understand that we have to go back to principles of living. And once we can get there, I think it will allow us to take care of a lot of these problems quicker. I think that's what the first step has to be for us to collectively come together and build on principles, the same uniting principles. I'm not certain what that will be. I think that, you know, it's going to take a lot of work for us to come to the table, a lot of us equitably to come to the table and be able to speak our voice and create uh, our pathways with principles. I think that's how we get there first. Dr. Cree Banton speaking with Terius Bruce for the most recent episode of the podcast, Undisciplined. You can hear the full episode right now at KUAF.com or when you search Undisciplined anywhere you listen to podcasts. I'm Daniel Carruth, and you're listening to a podcast special on Ozarks at Large. This is Ozarks at Large. Two of Northwest Arkansas's most popular podcasters met earlier this spring in the Furman Garner Performance Studio at KUAF. Randy Wilburn is the host of I Am Northwest Arkansas, and Irvin Camacho is the host of District 3. Both podcasts also happen to be distributed by KUAF. In this episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas, the prolific host covered several topics from how podcasts are helping to bring more and different voices to local storytelling, and as we'll hear in this excerpt, what a growing Latino and Latina population in the region can mean for Northwest Arkansas. Irvin Camacho speaks first. I think uh, specifically there's there's a lot of, of jobs here, and that's one of the, the driving factors that's why people want to come here. Mm-hmm. I know that was the biggest factor for us. There yeah. was more jobs. There was more opportunities college-wise as well. And contrary to what some people might, might think, this is a very safe place. You yeah. know, it's, it's a very safe place. Absolutely. Sure, we have our little, our little uh, issues here and there, right? But overall, like, if you compare it to where I'm from, where I'm from, like we show up on, on an episode of Cops, like every episode of Cops has a segment dedicated to my birthplace. Yeah. To Salinas, California. Yeah. You know, and, and, and we come from a place where in our neighborhood, there was a lot of crime, gang activity and stuff. Here, I haven't had any issues myself. Right. Ever. Right. You know, and, 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 and we're very blessed to be here. But I think what ends up happening is that one relative will move here from someplace in Mexico and then they'll tell the rest of the relatives who live in either Mexico or California or other states, come over here. There's jobs. Right. Like I, I've interviewed probably, I would say, probably 40, 50 people on this podcast where their story has been that. It's yeah. been like, I asked them, how did you get here? And they said, a relative told us that there was jobs, opportunities, and it was a safe place to move to. And that's why we moved here. We just want to succeed. We want to we wanna be able to as cliche as this may sound, pursue the American dream and Absolutely. live it, you know, and be happy with our families. Yeah. So I think that's yeah. the driving factor as to why you see these uh, populations of, of Latinx folks increase here in Northwest Arkansas and Arkansas in general. Yeah. 
And I'm glad you mentioned that. And, and I want to ask you this because, you know, I get asked this all the time and I know there's been blowback and there's a, there's a little bit of PC about the whole term Latinx. Yeah. Where do you fall on that conversation? Is it acceptable? Is there a better term to use as mm-hmm. far as that's concerned? Because there are a lot of people that struggle with it. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't, that's not really my focus is, is, hey, you're, if you're my brother, you're my brother. You're, you may happen to be of Latin descent, but you know, you're my brother, you're my sister as far as that's concerned. But I'm curious to know, because I know a lot of people struggle in this area and it's like, well, what, what words should I use? What have you said? And what, what is acceptable in the community mm-hmm. uh, that you're finding? So this is part of the conversation I had with Ro okay. uh, on her podcast. Okay. We talked about this. So it's complicated. Right. I, I want to start with by saying that it's complicated. And I also want to start by saying that I am not the sole representative of the Latinx community. Oh, I got you. And I'm just like I'm not the sole representative of all black people. Before That's for I, sure. Before, I get so. the, before we get the trolls up in here. So I use the word Latinx simply because folks from the trans LGBTQ community told me that's the term at that time that made them feel welcome, inclusive and in the Latino community. So that's why I use it. And also, I use it because, let's say, for example, there's a a room full of Latina women, right? Mm -hmm. It's a room full of Latinas. Mm -hmm. One man comes in, it stops being a a room full of Latinas, it becomes Latinos. Right. Right? So Latinx for me just made sense simply because of the inclusive part, but at the same time, just to kind of find some sort of term that represents us all and that it includes everybody that may use some other type of terms in the future. Sure. But, But after saying that, Latinx is not used in our family gathering. Like yeah. my family has never used the term Latinx. They'll use Latinos, Latinas, Hispanics. Those of us, the majority of us that use the Latinx term are not forcing anybody to use it. We're just saying, this is why we use it. This is why it's important to us. Some people use Latinx. Some people use Latin A because it has the E at the end and it's easier to pronounce in Spanish for folks. Yeah. yeah. We're not going to get mad at whatever you use. Just sure. don't, as long as you don't use anything derogatory, we don't care what you call us. This is just what we're going to call ourselves. And we don't understand why it's been made a big deal because we're not trying to force anything on anyone. Yeah. But ultimately, the ones that use Latin A or Latinx, we're just trying to be inclusive. Mm-hmm. That's it. doesn't hurt anybody. Yeah. It doesn't affect anybody, but it does make someone feel welcomed into our community by us using that term. Okay. That's why. Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. So. All right. Well, I will I will certainly keep that in mind as I move forward. But every now and then it, it does come up. And so I, I just figured it would be worth asking. So it's not a big deal. Only it's not. I, I think only three percent of the Latinx population use the term. And I know a lot of people have said that the other percent hate it, but they don't hate it. They just don't know about it, don't care about it, don't have a conversation about it. But it's up to us. Maybe the next generation will use it more, right? But we're not we're not here trying to force our parents or folks that are older to use it. We just, you know, we use whatever they want to use. So sure. we don't even use those kind of terms. We don't even use like in conversations. We really don't talk about Hispanics, Latinos or anything in our families. We just talk about us yeah. you know, without labels. But they're trying to make it a big deal. But it really isn't. Yeah. For us. I got you. Yeah, I got you. Now, that makes perfect sense. So now is it I know you do. You offer a bilingual podcast. How are you able to do both episodes? Are some episodes in English? Some episodes are in Spanish? So we've done episodes in Spanish, and the majority of our episodes 
are in English, but whenever there's someone that comes in that speaks Spanish and English, we'll just change. We talk in Spanish and then we'll just shift to English. But we try to have the majority of the language be English, so that folks that don't understand Spanish can still enjoy it and relate. Yes. Yeah. But the yeah. goal is, if someone comes in that's bilingual, we're gonna throw in some Spanish in there because sure. we want to keep that bilingual flow going. And sometimes it just comes out naturally without thinking. Yeah. Like I'll be talking English and then I get mad or something, and the <laughs> Spanish comes out. Right. You know. Right. So we we try to do it in that way. We can't go full Spanish just because a lot of the folks that listen to us won't understand. Yeah. And we want to stay true to our roots and include Spanish. So we, like I said, we try to put it in there whenever we have some bilingual guests. We don't want to make anybody feel left out, though. That was Irvin Camacho, host of the District 3 podcast and the guest of Randy Wilburn, who hosts and produces the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can listen to more at IamNorthwestArkansas.com or subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can also learn more about both I Am Northwest Arkansas and District 3 when you go online to KUAF.com. You're listening to Ozarks at Large. KUAF's Listening Lab is now open. The Listening Lab is a space for honest and intimate conversations to better understand our neighbors and ourselves and is made possible by the Walmart Foundation. This month, for Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month in May, the lab welcomed Ari, Abdullah, Lucas, Saad, Aisha, and Fawn, who shared with us their experiences living, working, and going to school in America. I want my kids to know kind of where they fit into this larger story of like me and my wife, but also our parents to help them remember and to help them understand that they are like Chinese. They are like part of this larger history. You can hear more from the Listening Lab this week on KUAF. To learn more about the lab and schedule your visit, go to KUAF.com slash the dash listening dash lab. And we'll have more from KUAF's newest project, The Listening Lab, on tomorrow's episode of Ozarks at Large. Our final chapter in this podcast journey takes us to Rome with the Points of Departure podcast. The series brings together people from all over the world to explore local solutions to global problems. Host Lawrence Hare and Rogelio Garcia Contreras recorded episodes from Europe last summer when they were visiting with partner organizations in Barcelona and Rome. In this episode, we tag along on a field trip with University of Arkansas students as they get a different perspective on the Eternal City. It's a sweltering June day in Rome, and traffic buzzes while big puffy clouds obscure the pounding sun for just a moment, while a group of university students crowd around a tour guide. The big nose, Nassone. The big nose. Okay, it is the very important symbol of the city. But this isn't the typical tour you would think of. They aren't gathered outside of the Colosseum or the Vatican or any other number of historical landmarks that you might find in the Eternal City. Today, this class from the University of Arkansas is touring a multi-ethnic food market. You're listening to Points of Departure. 
This is producer Daniel Carruth here, and I'm giving Lawrence and Rogelio a break for today and closing out the second season with a bit of a field trip. We'll follow along with students in the U of A Rome campus's Global Studies class at the end of their studies last summer. Professor Camilla Lay explains how she's attempting to take new approaches to study abroad that can push students out of their comfort zone and let them experience the reality of a city from the taste, smells, history, and politics that they're actually studying in. All that and more coming up on Points of Departure. You're listening to Points of Departure. We're on the east side of Rome, just outside the Piazza Vittorio Emanuele II, near the metro station. It's a busy neighborhood and people shuffle by, trying to catch a train or dip into shops or under archways to hide from the stifling heat. Professor Camilla Lai corrals a group of American students and brings them to attention. Okay, we're still waiting for someone. They're about to go on a migrant walking tour. This tour is headed up by guide Marta Marciniak from the Migrant Tour Project. It's a company that offers walking tours throughout the city, all led by immigrants to Rome. Okay. <laughs> I am from Poland and, and I have lived in Italy for 55 years. Marta leads the class of less than a dozen students through to a large marketplace, full of stalls selling everything from textiles to halal lamb and basketfuls of basmati rice, Thai basil, or caramel-colored dates. Formerly known as the Mercato Nuovo Escalino, the multi-ethnic market is a staple for Rome's growing migrant population mostly North African, but you can also find vendors from China to Southeast Asia and India to West Africa. Lai says the goal of this class, Global Studies, is to immerse her students from Arkansas in a more diverse, more realistic Rome than what they may have seen in a study abroad pamphlet. Okay, because migration and, you know, um, transformation of the human race, as in getting more integrated, is definitely a trend of the modern century everywhere. However, the history of American migration, the American continent, as opposed to our situation in Europe, is extremely different. So Italy being um, so close to the Mediterranean, we get a very mixed migration. We get refugees running away from war. We get working migrants. We get all of Africa and a bunch of Asia. Um, so uh, it's, it's important to witness the difference of, um, you know, how uh, different, and, and in, in some ways it's also very recent in Italy. Uh, we got the boats from Libya, it's, you know, seasonally every week. And as Italians, we were used a hundred years ago to be a, as, uh, to be a population of migrants ourselves moving out. So now we are trying to figure out how to come to terms with these different people from all over the world moving in. And, um, and I think it's very different than what you guys have witnessed through your own history in the United States, being itself a land of immigrants. So it's useful for the students to have a different perspective. Global studies, I think it's a lot about 
changing the focus of the lens as if you had a camera and just shifting it from one perspective to the next and then you get an entirely different picture from the same image. She says these field trips can break down the distance between perception and reality, which she believes is the best tool for understanding the larger concepts that she's teaching like migration, economics and politics. Christina Rodrock, a junior communications major at the University of Arkansas, stares at a stall piled with racks of patterned cloth. The bright blues, reds, and yellows are not stereotypically Italian, and she says she's never really seen anything quite like this market before. The whole class is pretty much centered around becoming more culturally aware, and so I think that this field trip has done a really good job of showing um, the diversity that's in Rome that we're not always aware of and that I haven't really been aware of until now. After taking a tour through the market's bustling stalls, the group lands back at the entrance next to a stockpile of bags of rice and coffee beans. A man stands up from his stool. This is Mustafa, a Libyan refugee and a longtime vendor at the market. Professor Lai translates while students sheepishly volley questions. William has a question. Um, how do you open a shop? William Wood is a sophomore studying economics and political science at the U of A. He says when he decided to study abroad in Rome, he pictured a pretty standard study abroad experience. But taking part in this class and other experiences like it, he says, has often challenged his ideas and understanding of the world. It kind of takes you away from like your nationalism, I'm always right. Um, and I think like this class it's really shown me that, you know, um, everybody has just grown up different. You know, we're all, like, all still humans, and I could have been like them if I'd grown up where they had grown up. Grown up. Um, and so, yes, definitely would help, big time. And Camilla Lai says that's exactly what this course is designed to do. I see my students learn more from witnessing, touching, getting their hands dirty, being outside than being in a classroom. And because it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be able to be outside and in Rome and in a city that um, has got a lot to teach and tell, uh, we try to do more excursions and have more outside lectures, especially in the specific courses like Global Studies, Global Change Makers. There's some courses that are obviously more prone and uh, easier to adapt to. And yeah, I mean, especially when it comes to food and market, you can learn with something else than just uh, books and uh, me talking by smelling the spices, by which is something they always hold in their memories and viewing different colors and talking to someone that speaks Arabic and hearing Pashto or Bindukoli being shouted in the street. It's, a, um, it's an experience that doesn't probably happen every day back at main campus. Research from the U.S. State Department-funded Open Doors Survey puts Italy as one of the top study abroad destinations for American college students, with roughly 30,000 filtering through the country each year. And Lai believes too often these students don't get a real look at her country or even break out of those designated tourist areas. Um, I always see my students transformed. Five weeks is an extremely short time, but it's very concentrated. Um, you know, from the, the questions they asked at the beginning and someone uh, uh, now just off my hat, um, William came and said like, you know, I, I can tell who's Italian, who's American uh, by looking at how people dress. 
um, in the street. I don't, I'm not used to that. And then one time we went to like a cooking class of Syrian refugees um, in a place that's definitely out of the tourist track. And he was like, oh my God, it feels like really North Carolina. I was like, I would have never thought that, but that a neighborhood in Tuscolana would be so similar to really North Carolina. Uh, but at the beginning, they compare everything to the U.S., to what's familiar to them. And then there's a sudden shift of opening up and just being open to the unexpected. Kind of like let their guards down somehow. They're not scared. Not that they're scared, but like subconsciously, maybe they are a little bit more careful. And then they become extremely open to the unexpected. And that's when I think the real learning comes in. The migrant tour flows through the Vittorio Emanuele neighborhood, past bubbling water fountains and churches, yes, but also past storefronts showing off specialty African goods and even a mosque. The tour ends just outside of Termini Station, one of the busiest in the city. Junior Elizabeth McKitchick says the more tangible, unexpected experiences like this have added to her study abroad experience. Yeah, I'm getting to do things that I would probably never do if I just came here on vacation with family. So it's really cool, especially with this class, to um, get to be immersed in the culture. And Rod Rock, who wants to work with refugees in the future, agrees that these excursions and interactions have been fundamental to the course. Uh, before I actually studied abroad, I had this like kind of glamorous idea of what it was and this like glorified version of getting to see a country. But I think coming here, I was really able to see like the culture and be immersed in it. Um, and so I think study abroad did a really good job in this class especially showing that other side of like the people who actually live here and not just like the Colosseum and the Vatican. The real Roman flavor, not even Italian, just Roman traditional flavor products. Points of Departure is hosted by Rogelio Garcia Contreras and Lawrence Hare and is a podcast production of KUAF Public Radio and Arkansas Global Changemakers. You can listen to full episodes online at KUAF.com or just search Points of Departure wherever you listen to podcasts. KUAF is your source for news and entertainment on the air and in your podcast feed. With podcasts like Ozarks at Large, Resilient Black Women, The Lunch Hour, and The R Word. You can rely on KUAF to bring you a diverse lineup of culture and news you need whenever you need it. Find our entire lineup of podcasts at KUAF.com slash podcasts. The Northwest Arkansas Naturals host the Corpus Christi Hooks this week at Arvest Ballpark in Springdale. Tickets and promotional information are available online at nwanaturals.com. You've been listening to a special episode of Ozarks at Large on KUAF 91.3 FM in Fayetteville, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Today's show was produced in the Karantaha News Studio. Contributors included Lowell Taylor, Karee Banton, Matthew Moore, Randy Wilburn, Irvin Camacho, Lawrence Hare, and Rogelio Garcia Contreras. On tomorrow's show, we'll bring you excerpts from KUAF's new Listening Lab. Until then, I'm Daniel Carruth. Thanks for listening to Ozarks at Large.